0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID 19. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. The South African variant of COVID-19 has changed the outlook for the way the coronavirus pandemic is likely to unfold in South Africa as well as elsewhere. Scientists in South Africa say there is a reasonable concern that the new variant of COVID-19 sweeping across the country might prove to be more resistant to current vaccines being rolled out in the UK and elsewhere. And they warn that it makes the need for a global rollout of vaccines even more critical. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we have a special interview with one of South Africa's leading scientists in the fight against SARS-CoV-2. Professor Shabir Mahdi, a globally renowned professor of vaccinology at the University of the Witwatersrand, has been leading trials for the vaccine in South Africa. He shares the details of the work going on behind the scenes to understand the mutations and what this means for vaccine development, the impact of the disease on people, and how governments can respond to the changing threat from the disease. Also in this episode, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg on what we know about the source of the pandemic, and why bats are an important host of some of humanity's most feared viruses. First, a snapshot of the COVID-19 news-making world headlines. As of the 7th of January, just under 2 million people have died of coronavirus worldwide, with about 88 million cases reported around the world, That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre. The US has the highest number of reported cases at just over 21 million and the largest number of reported deaths at nearly 362,000. India has the second highest number of COVID-19 cases at more than 10 million and the third highest number of deaths from the disease, with more than 150,000 lives claimed by the novel coronavirus. Brazil has the second highest number of deaths, not far off 200,000, and ranks third on the list of countries hardest hit by COVID-19. South Africa is the hardest hit on the continent, according to official tallies of cases and deaths. It has the 12th highest number of cases at more than 1.1 million and the 15th largest death toll, with nearly 38,000 people dying of this disease. South Africa says it will cost twenty billion rand to inoculate two-thirds of the population, and the state will be the sole purchaser of vaccines. This is according to Health Minister's William Keezer, who told Parliament in a presentation on Thursday that the government will agree contracts with suppliers and allocate vaccines to regional authorities and the private sector. The majority of the COVID 19 doses will come from AstraZeneca, which has set a price of 54 Rand for each shot, compared with Moderna's 536 Rand per shot. That's according to Discovery's Dr. Ryan Noach. Dr Noach told Bloomberg News Service that South African medical insurers will pay for a COVID-19 vaccine for as many people who don't have coverage as they have members, and they expect the program to cost as much as 7 billion rand. The subsidy will mean that including medical aid members, the companies will finance vaccines for 14 million adults in the country of 60 million people. Discovery has already set aside the money, he says. He is quoted as saying that the ultimate effect is the one-to-one cross-subsidy. Bloomberg says the plan is being led by Adrian Gore, the CEO and co-founder of Discovery, which is the parent of Discovery Health and Africa's biggest health insurer. This comes after he was approached by South African Health Minister William Kize. More than 1,000 coronavirus deaths have been confirmed in the UK's highest death toll since April. That's according to the Telegraph newspaper. A further 1,000 Britons have died with COVID-19, taking the UK's death toll to more than 77,000 according to the Department of Health, That is the highest death toll since April. It is also the highest figure recorded in the space of 24 hours since the start of the pandemic. The UK is number five on the list of countries with the highest number of cases and deaths from the disease. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has warned that the country could easily remain under lockdown until April. He says that vaccines are, quote, our means of escape. And he has pledged that the government will use every available second of the lockdown to place the shield around the elderly and the vulnerable. Meanwhile, Indonesia's plan to begin mass inoculations against COVID-19 will prioritise working-age adults over the elderly, with the aim of reaching herd immunity fast and reviving the economy. It is a strategy that will be closely watched by other nations, says The Telegraph. Several countries such as the UK and the US have already begun vaccinations by giving priority to elderly people who are more vulnerable to the respiratory disease. In Indonesia, working-age adults will be vaccinated after frontline health workers and public servants. China has played down concerns that a World Health Organization mission has been blocked from investigating the origins of COVID-19, saying discussions on access are still taking place amid a spike in local infections. Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying told a regular news briefing in Beijing the problem was not just about visas for the team. Professor Shabir Mahdi, who has led trials for the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa and is described as the country's leading vaccinologist, has told the BBC that it's a reasonable concern that the South African variant might be more resistant. Professor Mahdi was responding to comments by the UK government and scientists. He says that a definitive answer will probably come in a matter of weeks, with extensive testing already underway in South Africa. Coming up next, BizNews interviews Professor Mahdi about the latest thinking on COVID-19, vaccines, and how the country should manage the crisis.
2: Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. So the new variant certainly is of great concern at two, at two levels. Uh, and I'm specifically referring to the South African variant. Uh, And the reason why it's of concern at two levels. Firstly, uh, this particular variant, which shares a lineage to the variant that emerged in the United Kingdom a few months ago, uh, is much more transmissible. Based on data from the United Kingdom, it appears that this variant, in terms of its transmission efficiency, is at least about 50% higher than earlier variants that were circulating. And the main reason for that is that there's been a mutation in the virus uh, which makes it much more easy and for the virus to adhere to the receptor, which allows it to gain entry into the body, which is known as the ACE2 receptor. So it seems to be a much more transmissible virus. Uh, it's been attributed as being the reason why the United Kingdom has experienced such a rapid resurgence of such great magnitude. Uh, in South Africa, we also we also experiencing a resurgence in many parts of the country, having started off in the Eastern Cape, moved on to the Western Cape, and more recently in Gauteng. Uh, Now, the reason for the resurgence in South Africa is probably a combination of factors, and not just because of the variant. Uh, Much of the resurgence probably is more attributable to having allowed people to engage in mass gatherings, Uh, once we went into a level one sort of lockdown. And I think that was an incorrect decision. Uh, Mass gatherings should never have been allowed in South Africa. But unfortunately, at the same time, this particular variant uh, evolved and was first identified sometime in November and reported in December. So I think the combination of these two factors allowing for mass gatherings, coupled with uh, the evolution of this variant, which is much more transmissible, uh, has resulted in what we're currently experiencing in South Africa. The second reason why the variant is of concern is because of the potential uh, to evade the immune responses that might be induced by vaccination. So in South Africa, which, is, which differs from the variant in the United Kingdom, there's an additional, an additional mutation uh, of the genome that codes for what is known as a receptor binding domain. And that is a very critical component of the virus, both in terms of adhering to human cells, as well as in terms of our ability uh, to induce immunity against the virus. Now, this part of the virus, where the this part of the protein where a mutation has occurred, or at least one of the mutations has occurred, uh, is an important part of the virus in terms of the antibody that's produced to assist in terms of preventing infection, or at least uh, preventing infection from progressing to disease. So this part of the muta- this mutation, uh, which is specific to the South African variant, but is now being identified in other places as well, is of critical importance when it comes to vaccines. Uh, the current data indicates, uh, and this is using testing samples of individuals that have recovered COVID- from COVID-19 against uh, a similar variant that's currently circulating in South Africa, is that individuals that have recovered from COVID-19, their antibody is 10 times less potent uh, against this variant uh, compared to uh, earlier versions of the virus that were circulating. Uh, so the antibody seems to be less potent in terms of neutralizing the activity of this virus, but that doesn't extrapolate that vaccines are going to be tenfold less effective. Uh, and I think we need to be a bit cautious in terms of making that sort of an extrapolation. Uh, so in South Africa, currently, we are doing a number of investigations to determine what the effect of this uh, mutation is uh, in terms of the immune uh, responses that are induced by vaccines. Uh, we, in the laboratory, we are testing three different uh, vac- immune responses from three different vaccines against this variant to see if there is actually a in terms of the potency of the antibody that's induced by vaccine against the variant, and those results will hopefully be forthcoming in a few weeks, Uh, in addition to which uh, we're also nearing completion of obtaining adequate number of cases in three different vaccine trials that are currently underway in South Africa, uh, which will in fact give us a clinical readout as to whether vaccines do or do not protect against this variant.
1: How worried are you about this new strain and all the work that's gone into vaccines so far? Do you think that uh, it's back to the drawing board?
2: Uh, it really depends on the findings that, in fact, comes out from South Africa in the course of the next few weeks, which will determine uh, the importance of this variant, both in terms of vaccines and more generally. Uh, if the South African study as an example, both in the lab studies as well as the clinical studies, indicate that the vaccine uh, efficacy is being compromised because of this variant, uh, then we've got the big problem, and not just in South Africa, that becomes a global problem. And at at the same time, uh, we're in a fortunate situation in that uh, some of the vaccines that have been developed are fairly easy to adapt, uh, to basically get you to target this variant. And in fact, work is already underway by a number of companies to try to modify the vaccines to be more specific to this variant. Uh, but obviously that is not, this is not going to be the last of variants that evolves, uh, which might show some sort of uh, attenuation in terms of sensitivity to the immune responses that are induced by vaccines or also by natural infection. So I am concerned, but I think we just need to be about guarded in terms of over-interpreting the available data currently, of which there is very little that vaccines won't actually protect against this variant.
1: So does this mean that the epidemiologists also have to go back to the drawing board with their forecasts for how this disease might play out now?
2: Uh, Very much so. And I think just uh, by virtue of what we're experiencing currently in South Africa, uh, by virtue of what has been experienced in the United Kingdom, it clearly shows that the previous model, uh, in fact, is uh, no longer up. It doesn't actually any longer stand up to scrutiny. Uh, When a virus becomes more efficient in terms of transmission, there's something known as the effective reproductive rate. Uh, And that's the number of new individuals uh, that might be infected uh, by one other person that has been infected. And that changes over time, and it depends on the number of people that remain susceptible in the community. Uh, So what is also otherwise referred to as the R0 as an example, the reproductive rate. Uh, for initially that was estimated to be around about between two and three that is every new individual will probably pass on the virus on average to two to three other people Uh, when there's a variant that's much more transmissible you expect that effective reproductive rate to go up Uh, and this also becomes particularly of a problem in settings where there's very little immunity so we would see a much more rapid resurgence Uh, we would see a resurgence at a greater magnitude, we would end up seeing more cases of hospitalisation relative to what we experienced with the earlier version of the virus, and unfortunately, we will see more deaths occur relative to what happened with the earlier version of the virus.
1: So what do you think governments should be doing right now to curb the spread of this virus that seems to be evolving?
2: Look, uh, there isn't any one solution that applies uh, for every country. Uh, it really needs to be tailored by, by country. As an example, in the United Kingdom, where they're now going to high levels of restriction, uh, that's a strategy that can work in the United Kingdom. They've got the socioeconomic uh, infrastructure and resources to support such a strategy, in addition to which they've got vaccines that are on the horizon and they've got an ambitious program to get a large percentage of the population vaccinated as quick as possible. So under those sort of scenarios, uh, it would probably make perfect sense to go into what is South Africa is known as the equivalent of a level five lockdown until you can get uh, a reasonable amount of immunity in the population through vaccination. Uh, in South Africa, is an example where there's pretty much little option of vaccines becoming available anytime soon, and even if it becomes available anytime soon, uh, it's going to be of limited quantity and it is going to take a long time uh, for us, months, uh, if not years, for us to vaccinate up to two thirds of the population. Uh, going into a lockdown now is simply not sustainable from a number of fronts. Firstly, in terms of the epidemic itself, all they need to do is that you to delay the resurgence. It's not that uh, lockdown gets rid of the virus under any imagination. Uh, South Africa tried it the first time round and was spectacular in terms of the failure of the lockdown to reduce community transmission so a level 5 lockdown doesn't get rid of the virus all it does is actually delays the resurgence as yes, was experienced with the first uh, level 5 lockdown in South Africa so we, that is not an option uh, the main thing that we need to do is try to limit uh, the rate of spread of the virus and the, only, the most force, the most effective tools uh, that we have to limit the force of uh, the rate of uh, uh, circulation of the virus or transmission of the virus foremost is not to allow for mass gatherings to take place, especially in indoor poorly ventilated areas. That is a no, no, no. And unfortunately in South Africa, that was allowed when we went into level one lockdown, despite advice not to actually do that. Uh, Then there's other other non-pharmacological interventions uh, and those everyone knows about the wearing of face masks, especially when in indoor spaces is of critical importance because that reduces the chances of someone that is infected, knowingly or unknowingly, transmitting the virus. Uh, The physical distancing, where uh, it is uh, feasible. When we talk of physical distancing, in many parts of the country, that is a luxury that uh, even households and neighbours can't actually indulge in because of the high density in many areas and the poverty under which people live.
1: There are a lot of anti-maskers and people anti-vaccination as well. What is your general message to those people?
2: Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's quite simple. They probably should take some time off and visit the cemeteries and hospitals. And if they do believe that COVID is not a problem, they should come and volunteer to clean the floors in the hospitals and they might get a wake-up call.
1: There's been some criticism from the British government about the South African strain. Do you think that we also need to be careful about all the other strains coming into South Africa?
2: I think firstly the British government uh, and especially the person responsible for health is quite naive uh, to believe that this is a problem in South Africa and that uh, preventing South Africans from traveling to the United Kingdom is in any way going to assist the United Kingdom in terms of the virus not being imported into the United Kingdom if it's not already seeded in the United Kingdom for two reasons. Firstly, uh, these variants are not uh, going to be localized by any stretch of the imagination. In terms of the amount of traffic that has taken place between South Africa and the United Kingdom uh, in November and December before they put the ban in terms of travel, this virus has already transmitted, has already uh, moved on into the United Kingdom. In addition to which, uh, there's been a large amount of uh, traffic uh, between in, from South Africa and to South Africa uh, with visitors from other countries and especially the countries in sub-Saharan Africa over the past two months, as well as European visitors, etc. Uh, This variant has basically pretty much probably been seeded in many countries where there's been a large enough numbers of individuals that have traveled to South Africa or where South Africans have traveled to. Uh, The absence of identification of the the variant in countries doesn't actually infer the absence of presence of the virus. And the reason for that is that if countries are not doing enough sequencing of the virus, which even in the United States is fairly limited, you're simply not going to detect the, the variant. So in the rest of in most of the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, there's almost no sequencing taking place. In fact, there's no diagnosis of COVID taking place because there's no testing taking place. And that doesn't mean that there's no COVID. That doesn't mean that the, the variant hasn't actually already dispersed into those countries. Uh, we've seen now about five, six uh, northern hemisphere countries already report the identification of one or two cases of, of this variant. And the identification of one to two cases of this variant probably actually infers uh, the presence of hundreds, if not thousands, of cases of the variant, considering what percentage of the cases uh, that are identified if the virus eventually sequenced.
1: How do you see the pandemic unfolding this year in South Africa and elsewhere?
2: Uh, in South Africa, it's uh, unfortunately, uh, I think we're in an extremely difficult position. Uh, I think we're going to have this resurgence. It might well subside in a space of the next Uh, three to four weeks or four to six weeks, depending on which province you are. Uh, But unfortunately, what's probably going to happen in the absence of us being able to induce immunity through vaccination uh, is we're probably going to experience further resurgences. We're very likely to experience another resurgence two to three months later and probably in the midst of the winter period uh, because people are more likely to gather indoors. And what we've got this year, unlike last year, is that in this winter period, we've got widespread presence of the virus. In the previous winter period, uh, there was there was presence of the virus, but not as established as what, as what exists uh, currently. Uh, so we're probably going to experience another resurgence come uh, June, July, and we probably will have a fourth resurgence. Uh, I think the only hope for South Africa right now is uh, what I believe might be possible. And that is uh, purely by accident and not by design, and it should never be by design. But the reality in South Africa is that large percentage of individuals, based on the limited series epidemiological studies that were done the first time round, were actually infected in the first wave. The second wave is going to result in even, even greater percentage of the population having been infected by the virus. So we're sitting in a situation where there is going to be some level of evolution of immunity against the virus because of natural exposure to the virus, purely by accident and not by design. And I think uh, probably after the second and most likely after the third wave, if the the magnitude of these waves are similar, if not greater, than the first time around, we probably will end up with a situation where a reasonable number of people in South Africa will develop some level of immunity against the virus. The big question is whether that immunity actually protects uh, against future infections. And I'm optimistic it does protect, if not against infection, at least in terms of infection progressing to disease. So bringing all of these things together, it might well be that this is, in fact, the storm uh, that will take us to some level of community immunity that assists for future resurgences to be of a lower magnitude, less severe, uh, which basically translates into less pressure in terms of healthcare facility utilization and demand, as well as uh, hopefully less deaths taking place. But we're very likely to experience a third and a second, and another resurgence probably after that within the course of 2021.
1: Did this mutation take scientists by surprise? And do you think that it's possible we could get yet another,
2: even nastier virus? Yeah, so just again to emphasize that uh, this virus is not more virulent, in that, uh, what is known as the infection mortality rate of everyone that gets infected, the infection mortality rate probably is the same as earlier versions of the virus. So it's not more virulent. Uh, the people that get, get infected to this virus don't necessarily will have a, out, a poorer outcome compared to the earlier versions of, of the variants that were circulating. Uh, but what it is is more transmissible, which means that more people are going to get infected over a short period of time, which means that more hospitalizations are going to take place and more people are going to die. But that's because of larger number of people getting infected rather than because the virus itself has become much more aggressive. Uh, are further variants going to evolve? Without question, further variants are going to evolve. Uh, the big problem is that, at what part of the virus. So, as an example, the, the variant in the United Kingdom, it's got 21 different mutations. But there's only a single mutation that is of relevance right now, or understood to be of relevance right now. And that is a mutation that does the virus become more transmissible. In South Africa, the variant that's been identified has got a number of mutations over and above the ones that are of clinical significance. So these mutations take place randomly in the virus as it sort of uh, replicates, uh, but also because of the intent of the virus to become much more efficient in terms of its survival as well as its ability to transmit. And that's the reason why viruses undergo mutation or other organ microorganisms undergo mutation. It's all about the need for them to survive and adapt to the host at multiple levels. So yes, we are going to get more variants. I think that's a given. Uh, fortunately, up to now, the rate of mutation with SARS-CoV-2 is slower than the rate of mutation, as an example, with seasonal influenza virus. Uh, but time will tell. SARS-CoV-2 has been with us now just around for just over 12 months. Uh, and we're still learning day by day in terms of its evolution, in terms of the implications of new variants on epidemiology, as well as the potential for vaccines to impact against those variants. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's scary, uh, but time, I think the next few weeks will be highly informative uh, in terms of what is the clinical relevance of this variant, at least when it comes to vaccines. Inside COVID-19, from Biz news.
1: Next, Bloomberg Senior Editor Jason Gale catches up with Australian veterinarian Dr. Hume Field, a pioneer on research on why bats are a host to some of the most feared human viruses and have a link to COVID-19.
0: The story of bats and viruses can be traced to an Australian veterinarian, Dr. Hume Field, The son of a policeman, Hume grew up in various parts of the northeastern state of Queensland, where he developed a fascination for Australia's native fauna. Hume graduated from the University of Queensland in 1976. He worked for a couple of years in a small animal practice, but his interest in wildlife led him to pursue further study in the evenings, first in environmental science, then a doctorate in the mid-1990s. It allowed him to combine his love of native animals with emerging diseases at a time when the state's agricultural authorities were trying to figure out the source of a deadly horse disease. It was a virus that infected 20 race horses in the Brisbane suburb of Hendra in 1994. It's thought to have started when a mare called Drama Series was brought to the stables after she'd been grazing in a field at Cannon Hill, on the other side of the Brisbane River. Drama Series died two days later, and subsequently, all of the other horses fell ill. 13 of them died. What was especially alarming about this disease was that it crossed the species barrier. A trainer and another person tending to the horses became ill with a flu-like illness within days of Drama Series death. The stable hand recovered, but the trainer died of respiratory and kidney failure. The virus was eventually isolated and named Hendrovirus after the suburb where it was found. Hume was asked to help determine how Drama Series might have caught the virus. He went searching the paddock where she'd been grazing and presumably had become infected. He caught rodents, possums, feral cats and reptiles and tested them for hendrovirus. When the results came back negative, he went searching for clues via the people rescuing vulnerable wildlife. Here in Australia, they're sometimes referred to as wildlife carers.
3: So we subsequently broadened our search and started using wildlife carers as a a, a conduit, if you like, to be able to collect samples from sick and injured animals that were in their care uh, and it was in that process so again quite serendipitous that we actually sampled we were sampling kangaroos, we were sampling possums, we were sampling the usual things ducks, a whole range of things that would come into wildlife carers uh, and there were flying foxes and we sampled some flying foxes this was over a period of months and lo and behold uh, we found antibodies to virus in some flying foxes so we looked at some more flying foxes and then we looked at some flying foxes in, uh, in captive uh, populations at zoos, etc. And And that's how we identified uh, flying foxes as being, at that stage, uh, a possible reservoir. Then we went on to do further studies, eventually uh, detected an isolated virus, etc., cetera, et cetera. And so now flying foxes, or at least a couple of species of flying foxes in Australia, uh, are recognised as the, the primary reservoir host of hendrovirus.
0: Flying foxes aren't actually foxes. They're a large fruit-eating bat with a kind of fox-like face and expression. They weigh up to a couple of pounds and their wings can span more than three feet. The finding of hendrovirus in bats was important not just because it helped identify the pathway by which horses and people were being infected. It also made scientists alert to other viruses bats could potentially carry. About a year after Hugh made the discovery of virus in flying foxes, another opportunity to explore the ecology of viruses and bats presented itself, this time in Malaysia, where pigs and pig farmers were getting sick. By mid-1999, more than 265 people had fallen ill with encephalitis or inflammation of the brain. Of those cases, 40% were fatal. There were also 11 cases of either encephalitis or respiratory illness, including one death in neighbouring Singapore. Scientists found the viral source. It was named Nipah virus, which it turned out was from the same family as Hendra virus. Hume was asked to help investigate the source. They wanted
3: someone uh, who might be able to guide and work with them to find out the natural reservoir of Nipah. So, knowing that we knew about Hendra and bats, then we uh, immediately focused, not exclusively, but we certainly focused on flying foxes in Malaysia. Uh, and it wasn't too long before we found the evidence of, um, of uh, Nipah virus in species of flying fox there.
0: Just as Hendra virus did, the discovery of Nipah underscored the risks that emerge at the interface of wildlife, farm animals and humans. Professor Trevor Drew is the director of the Australian Animal Health Laboratory at Geelong, just outside of Melbourne. It's carried out key research on both Hendra and Nipah viruses. According to Trevor, the emergence of Hendra and then Nipah identified the ways in which bat-borne viruses can spill over and infect other species. And Nipah virus
4: was a disease also of uh, fruit bats in Malaysia initially, and uh, that virus uh, got into pigs because the, uh, they were starting to put pig farms into more forested areas and the faeces from the bats uh, got into the pigsties styes and, and was thought to have infected the pigs that way. And it killed hundreds of, uh, of pigs, if not thousands of pigs.
0: Nipah isn't just confined to Malaysia over the past decade it's caused outbreaks in india and bangladesh that have killed dozens of people we also now
4: also know from uh Uh, Incidents in Bangladesh of outbreaks of Nipah virus that you don't need the pig that the uh, that the bat can actually also infect humans directly via drinking out of uh, vessels of palm sap that are uh, put onto the tree to to harvest the palm sap and uh, people drink this palm sap but so does the bat and they will come down and the saliva from the bat can contaminate the the palm sap and infect the human directly so we know that uh, that that is one incident, but certainly in Malaysia now they're very, very
0: careful not to have pig farms uh, near bat roosts. An even more dramatic outbreak occurred just a few years later. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome or SARS emerged in southern China in 2002. It's a deadlier cousin of COVID-19 that quickly spread across the world. Hume Field was asked to help investigate its source. Mm.
3: Because of our experience with bats uh, and and, uh, hand virus and Nipah virus and a growing awareness that uh, there seemed to be something special about bats and uh, these spillover viruses, then we hypothesised that bats may play a role in the, um, the origins of SARS. And so we went down that track. It's interesting to reflect on the significance of the discovery of Uh, species of bats and flying foxes as the natural reservoir of henrovirus, because really that finding, uh, I think, has potentially coloured the identification of bats or, 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 you know, sort of underlying the identification of uh, various species of bats being associated with, with this suite of other emerging diseases that we've seen. Over time. If we
0: the group found... that Hume just referred to also includes Ebola viruses and Lysivirus, which causes rabies, as well as a number of coronaviruses, including SARS, and most likely the one responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. So what is it about bats that makes them such great virus vectors? Bats are, are
3: quite unique. Uh, if you... Think about it in terms of them being you know, a mammal that can fly. So, so um, bats are mammals. They produce milk. They suckle their young. They, uh, but they've got this amazing uh, evolutionary um, you know, adaptation or ability to be able to fly. So they're highly mobile. They also typically live in large populations, colonies, roost. Whether it's the big fruit bats or flying foxes whether it's small microbats in caves. And, and typically these uh, groups have mixed species as well. Um, they're relatively long-lived uh, animals as a, as a taxa. You know, flying foxes certainly uh, recorded, I think, in captivity to live well into twenties. certainly wouldn't live that long in uh, nature, but certainly, you know, they live for years. Uh, So all of these factors are very attractive for um, mammalian virus survival and dissemination, if you like.
0: According to Hume, bats have evolved and adapted to coexist with the viruses that infect them.
3: And so the thinking was that, well, you know, these are just viruses of bats and the bats are used to them because they've evolved with them. And that's why the bats don't get sick with these viruses. But if they spill into other naive immunologically naive species, then they have a dramatic, typically dramatic and often fatal infection. But more recently, people have dug a bit further to try to understand if there is indeed something else going on with bats, and it seems that there isn't.
0: Hume now works as a science and policy advisor with the EcoHealth Alliance. It's a New York-based NGO that works to protect wildlife and public health from the emergence of disease. Spillover events are becoming more risky. Bats, as we heard, are coming into closer contact with farm animals but they're also coming into closer contact with humans. A key reason for that is that bats are losing their habitat. Critically, they're losing their natural food source. Bats can help us identify what viruses of pandemic potential are lurking in nature, as well as ways we might be able to mitigate their threat. They're just one example of how humans are profoundly affected by what happens in global ecosystems. To anticipate, prevent and respond to disease threats like COVID-19 means taking an increasingly wide-angled look at the natural world.
1: That brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time, I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.